name is Gunner. I play in a local Austin band called The Big Gun Show, and I created this podcast to sit down with other songwriters, musicians, and artists, and lovers of music to talk about their top five records that have inspired their lives and musical prowess. I took a brief pause, a hiatus, if you will, but I'm back. I've really been missing doing these podcasts. It not only turns me on to the new music that I now love, but hearing why the podcastees actually chose their top five records. Now, as season two does continue, I'm thrilled to have John Chipman on the show today. He's been playing music professionally for over 25 years. He's played with an insane amount of musicians from the Resentments, who I so love, um, Slade Cleave, Band of Heathens, David Grissom, who I think defines what Texas blues really is, and of course my favorite, Kelly McWee. If you ask me, I think he's uh, one of the top three drummers here in Austin. He's toured numerous times in Europe and the Far East and moved to Austin after studying music and graduating from the University of Oklahoma. In 2007 and 2008 Austin Chronicle Music Awards, he won Best Drummer. Um, in Modern Drummer, he passes along some tidbits of what he has learned from other musicians. Number one, never ask of music. When you expect music to do things for you, it will not happen. Music itself is the reward. If any success or fame comes as a result of playing music, be forever thankful because you've already experienced more than 95% of the people who have ever picked up a pair of drumsticks. Number two, the fewer notes you play, the more money per note you're making. Save your big stuff for the last chorus of the last song in the encore. Number three, never play in a trio with a husband and wife. And number four, never cop an attitude. There's always somebody better than you. If you see someone who might not be up to your personal yardstick, watch even closer. They'll teach you something you didn't know. Well, late in season one, I implemented quizzes in the mix, and this will continue on future podcasts as we uh, move forward. And don't matter what I'm going to ask, it's all fun and smiles. Now, if you're digging on this, what we're laying down here, please give us a review on iTunes. Uh, you can find my top five records pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. But if you were to give a star for each one of your top five records on the Apple iTunes platform, that's five stars, uh, be super appreciated. Uh, let's get to this conversation. But first, close your eyes. You're at the Grand Canyon. What five records do you have? All right, boys and girls, get ready, buckle up. I've got Steve Carlson here, um, and I am excited, very excited, to talk about his top five records. How's it going, Steve? Pretty good, man. How you doing? Uh, I can't complain. It's getting hot. It's starting to get hot here in Austin. Time to evacuate. Yeah, so I know that you have these records. Uh, I'm very excited about these records. Uh, some of them I have not heard. Some of them I have. Jackson Brown, For Every Man, uh, War on Drugs, A Deeper Understanding, Taj Mahal. How do you say this? Nacho Blues? Nacho Blues. Na so almost like nacho. Natural. 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 Natural Blues. Uh, you've also got, what's the, what are the other ones here? You know, Abbey Road. A no, it's not Abbey Road. What? Is it Stevie not? Wonder Songs in the Key of Life. Natural Blues and U2. I pulled Abbey Road off. Wow. I'll tell you, it's hard. I know everybody says it when they come on here. Joshua Tree. So. Gosh, I can't believe I pulled out of your well, I, I, Hey, listen, yeah. I, tell, I tell everybody, <laughs> picking five records, it's not easy. Yeah. You know, that's typically the first thing I say. I say, here's, here's, here's the two things. You're going to have fun, and it's not hard. I mean, it's not easy picking five. Let's go ahead and start off with Jackson Brown, though, for Every Man. So it was his second studio album. It was released in 1973. It peaked at 43 on Billboard 200. 
a guest artist. I mean, come on here. David Crosby, Glenn Fry, Don Henley, Joni Mitchell, Bonnie Raitt. I mean, all over this thing. I think Elton John, too. Uh, I think he, yeah, I think he played keys on that yeah, someplace. I mean, just the songs. I mean, Take It Easy These Days. I love Redneck Friend. Redneck Friend is what Elton played on. He played keys I think on that's that. Right. The keys are sick on that. They're amazing. And um, David Lindley plays lap on that. And the lap is like, I play lap too. So yeah. it's kind of what inspired me to start playing lap steel. Nice. Was that album. Yeah. Well, okay. It's, what's this record? Why? So I think the reason I, I actually did put that one down first, um, it came out in 73, I believe. It did? I was born in 75. Um, my mom says she's convinced that I was conceived of that record because her and my dad, that's all they listened to um, at the time. So I think there's some reason why it resonates in that way, maybe. Um, and I, I think they just played it a bunch when I was a kid and I didn't, you know, subconsciously just listen yeah. to it constantly. Uh, but there's something about the record that, you know, I, I, I almost hate telling people about it because people who know my music, if right. they go back and listen to it, they're like, oh, he took that from that. Oh, he took that from that. <laughs> Chord progressions, like all that stuff. Instrumentation, his segues. The um, finest form of flattery is, is theft. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I like it too. It It's right in the middle of two of my other favorite records of his. The first one he did was Saturate Before Using, and he didn't produce that. And then the, the, the third album, which is what really broke him, like that was his, they, what they said was his best album, which was... Um, Oh my gosh! Now I'm gonna forget. Uh, I'll I'll remember when I stop trying to remember. Um, it, he produced Forever Man himself. Okay, which I like that too. I like it when artists produce their own stuff. I always I like digging into yeah. you know what singer songwriters produce on their own without producers. Just right because I've worked with you know by my on my own. I've worked with producers and mm -hmm. um, it's definitely it's it's more acoustic. There's a couple tunes on there like Take It Easy and, and Red uh, Redneck Friend that are that are, you know, big band stuff. But for the most part, it's mellow. Yeah. But it's got a, a real flow to it that you can just listen to. I'm an album guy, I know you are too. I don't I don't really listen to, you know, uh the radio. I listen to records. I just I like listening to albums from back to front. So when you asked me to pick those five, I was like, okay. Don't pick the ones that have like great songs on them. Right. Pick the ones that have that flow and are back to front. What you would just sit down and listen to a whole album. Of, there you go. Yeah. You know. Awesome. No, I I fully believe in the art of the album. I believe there's two first sides. I mean, two first tracks. I believe there's two last tracks, and there it should flow a specific way each side. Well, you know, I'm not going to dwell on the fact that I didn't pick Abbey Road, but I do <laughs> love at the end of Abbey Road how the end. The, how they how they you know ended the album with that for every man's the same way it yeah. ends with the title track mm -hmm. and he segues from the song before and i can't remember the title of the the one before it but he does this beautiful like just f that effortless flow into the last song that just leaves you like ah oh, and you, you just know yeah oh i'm at the end of the album you know and it gives you this sense of i don't know for me like completion and like oh, i'm getting to the end you yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I, I gotta. I will get to this later in the conversation. But for the war on drugs, uh, I got that same kind of feeling of like, wow, it's just like it, I, I, I feel the music now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not. Don't even get me. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll go we'll, into we'll that one. It. We'll get to it. <laughs> uh, did you know that before both of them came famous, but came famous, Jackson Brown and Greg Allman were roommates? I didn't know that. I know another story that, and it's in the Eagles documentary, that great one that came out a few years ago. Glenn Fry lived below Jackson Brown in mm -hmm. Laurel Canyon. 
Did you, did you ever hear that? I was um, going to ask you about it. Okay. <laughs> Go so ahead. It's Oh my gosh. It's so cool. So it's how Glenn Fry learned how to write music was listening to Jackson Brown upstairs. Um, Jackson would had a piano and he would wake up in the morning. He'd sit down with like, you know, a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, whatever. He'd play like a, a verse and he'd, he'd get through it, playing it over and over. And then he'd take a break. Then he'd come back. He'd write a chorus. Then he'd take a break, come back a little while later. He'd write a bridge Then he'd come back and, that's how Glenn used to sit downstairs, listen to him pounding away at the keys and just, well, oh, that's how you format a song. That's exactly right. So what I was going to tell you is that, so I did, I did some reading on this and, you know, he was actually living with Don Henley at the time. Okay. And they were upstairs from Jackson Brown in Echo Park and they would wake up to this piano coming through the floor and how Brown would do the same verse over and over, something like 20 times. And then he would do the same thing for the next verse. And at the time, they were just doing it. They were like days of this. And they're like, Jesus. And then finally, it hit him. They're like, this is how you write a song. This is going to happen, by the way, throughout the whole podcast. I'm going to bastardize all these stories. <laughs> I'm like, it was in Laurel Canyon, not Echo Park. They were downstairs. You're like, no, they were upstairs. We get the, we get the, the gist of it, though. Was, that's, how, that's how Glenn, I guess, because prior to that, they were just playing other people's songs. You know, yep. They played with Linda Ronstadt and, um, you know, kind of telling a little bit about my story. I, I was born in California and I think that's another reason I like Jackson so much is that I grew up on that sort of California country sound. Mm -hmm. I love the Crosby, Stills, Nash, uh, Flying Burrito Brothers, like all that stuff to me was like what I grew up listening to. Um, I worked, you know, I worked cowboy boots when I was in junior high school and nobody else did right. where, I, where I grew up. Um, and so it's kind of part of the reason I think I, I love living in Texas too and I've been here for now eight years. But I love... Um, I love that sound, man. I love the sound of pedal steel. I love, I play a mandolin a little bit too. And I, I love those folk, folky instruments. Yeah. Um, okay. Quiz question number one. You ready for this? Are we on the same record? Yeah, we're same. Okay. All right. Uh, same record. I, I thought you were already quizzing me. I, 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 no, I'm not yet. You get multiple choice quiz questions. All right. I, and they're supposed to be about the album. Okay. Um, so who's the co-writer of the first track off this record? Take it easy. Is it A, Greg Allman? Is it B, Glenn Fry? Or is it C, Don Henley? Glenn Fry. That's really good. You nailed it. Um, so I even know the party wrote. <laughs> I was standing I on the corner in Winslow, Arizona. <laughs> Such a fine side. He had already see. had the first verse yeah. in the in the chorus, I think, and, and uh, Glenn came in and wrote that yeah. second verse. Uh, there was a review um, in her November 1973 Rolling Stone. Janet Maslin wrote that for inwardly panoramic songwriting of an apocalyptic bent. Jackson Brown's second album is rivaled only by its first. The second one wins. And Jackson himself is rivaled by nobody. Wow. Um, what else about this album? What do you like? Um, I do like that, that there's that rendition of Take It Easy on there. Um, I'm trying to think of what, what I like about These it. Days is like one of my favorite songs of all time. And that's, I think... I mean, as we as we go forward, into them, I, I like kind of pointing out the one that's the one for me, yeah. you know, um, and for every man I love because it's the title track and it's the end of the album. But these days, it's just gorgeous. And a bunch of people have covered that. I think that uh, Greg so, Allman actually. Yes, covered he has. That. Yeah. He has for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I also read another review that said um, it was also in Rolling Stone. Jackson Brown emerged as the J.D. Salinger of the California singer-songwriter scene with his second album, capturing the transition from idyllic 60s to the disillusioned 70s. He sings a moving update of These Days, a song he originally wrote as a teenager for Velvet Underground singers, Nico. Nico, right, right. Yeah. Um, well, you know, 
speaking a little more, I remember the name of the album. It's um, Late for the Sky, the, <laughs> the third album that kind of broke him big. But um, he also is a wordsmith. You know, oh, like, yeah. that's my, uh, to me, that's what gets me. I, I, mm-hmm. I can't really get into singer songwriters or even musicians that aren't, that aren't poetic. You know, I, and that. I think that every one of these albums kind of has that. And I didn't, I don't think I consciously thought about it. I think just that's how I choose music Fair. that I like is artists who do that. And he's just so good um, with stringing words together, you know? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a songwriter too. And you know, when I first started writing songs, I just was like, Oh, it's all about the music. It doesn't matter about the words. And then I finally started meeting girls and they're like, I can't understand what you're saying. And I realized that they were paying attention to it. So then I grew a little bit there. And then I finally realized that, you know, the, the best songs out there have the best lyrics. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And so now I'm obsessive about it. Yeah. And all the greats that do it well are the ones, I think Billy Joel, Ugh. Elton John. I just heard Big I'm Shot so yesterday, and I was just like, oh, this is a killer song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. It's um, And that, that album in particular, like I said, I mean, I could have picked the other two because they're both great records, but I think that one, he, uh, it just has a vibe. And I, I, I think that if, if he were listening you know, to the review we're giving of it right now, I think he'd be happy because it was all him. You know, he produced yeah. it all himself and wrote it well didn't write it all by himself but you know for the most part wrote a lot of it and all the players yeah uh stevie wonder songs in the key of life you're Eight. gonna you're gonna kill me on this quiz by the way because uh, i don't i don't i don't think so well I, we'll see we'll see here <laughs> it's his 18th studio album 18th in 76 and by cho- choosing this record steve you have tied an owl you've set a, another record here you've set two records um, Willie's Redhead Stranger and Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks for the most picked record. Wow. Um, it l- remained on the, at number one on the Billboard for 13 consecutive weeks, and it is the best-selling and most critically acclaimed album of Wonder's career, r- careered, career reg- uh, widely regarded as Wonder's magnum opus, one of the greatest albums in the history of music, and I agree with that. Yeah, and it's also a double album, so I was kind of cheating because when you originally approached me, you're like, you're kind of telling me the idea. You're like, you know, they're like Desert Island Records, and I was like, okay, I'm picking records that are, are meaty, and I think this one's like 120 minutes or yeah. something. I don't mean to. I hope you're not going to quiz me. I hope I didn't just answer a quiz question no. because I don't know no. a ton about this record to be honest. No, with you, that's but, fine. But it is funny when you just said '76 that I'm picking records that all came out right around the time I was born. <laughs> War on Drugs was not. <laughs> no, that's, that's the true. other thing you that's did true. is you picked the most recent album by like 12 years. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I like that. Okay, you ready for this next quiz question? Mm-hmm. So he won an album. He won uh, Album of the Year at the 19th Grammy Awards. What album was not nominated at the 19th Grammy Awards in 1977 along with the songs in the Key of Life? Was it A, Rolling Stones, Black and Blue? Was it B, Peter Frampton, Frampton Comes Alive, or C, Boss Sag's Silk Degrees? Oh, man. C. Sorry, I, I tried to throw it. I thought it was going to be easy when I said Rolling Stones, Black and Blue, because that's, that's not going to be written for an uh, album. But, yeah, this, th- this album is, I mean, flat-out epic. Frampton Comes Alive. No, it was, uh, it was Rolling Stones, Black and Blue. Oh, it was Rolling Stones. Yeah, oh, they, sorry, sorry. I don't think they've ever got a best rock album. Yeah. Um, I, I still think they're the best. Uh, you know, Herbie Hancock, George Benson's played on it. Um, and I read this story. Uh, 
Stevie took a year off so he could release this double album. And he got it. He actually got it in 1977 is when he won the Grammy Award. But Paul Simon won the album of the year uh, in 1976. And he jokingly said, hey, Stevie, thanks for not releasing anything this year. Because <laughs> he was kicking so much ass. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I can tell you a story about this album. Um, I was in round, and I was up in Tin Cup, Colorado, and we're going to go, I'm going to make a real short story. We're going to go see this, this girl in a, in a cemetery that was walking around. And so we went to our campsite and we ate a bunch of peanut butter and mushroom sandwiches, smoked a bunch of weed. And then we went to the thing and we were blaring Stevie Wonder and then Lizzie the whole way there. So I, I remember Sir, Sir Duke. <laughs> That's what you do when you go to a cemetery. Yeah, you exactly. Eat peanut butter, mushrooms, sandwiches, yeah. and you smoke weed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I do. And, and booze. Don't don't forget that. Yeah. So, um, but what, I mean, other than this being just a, a flat out like amazing album, what what drew you to it? What has it done to you? There was just honestly, it's like pretty much all the other albums that I picked. I, I wasn't. I mean, I was basing it on the album, but also basing it on the artist. It's actually doesn't even have my favorite Steve Ray, or I'm sorry, Stevie Wonder song on it. I think, uh, was it the album after that? Talking Book? Or maybe, no, no, Talking Book came out right before that. Um, I Believe is my favorite. One of my, if you would ask me to do top favorite songs, I Believe would be on yeah, there. Yeah, that's even harder. Um, that's one of, I think, the best songs ever written. Like, it, just everything about it. The, the composition of it, the... Like everything is just genius. The feel, he does, motion. Yeah. He does this thing toward the end where he changes the whole groove into this like funk groove, and I love that. There's all these counter melodies, and he's just like such a freaking genius. But, um, but I, I, mean, I love Sir Duke. You know, I yeah. love the horns on it. I love just the vibe, man. I just feel like he like he hit his. I mean, he had already obviously hit his stride, but it's just one of those records that you like can't deny is one of the yeah. best sounding records ever made you know? okay i am yeah. I'm, I'm i'm full on i'm right there with you on that yeah. and another another wordsmith you know like yeah. he's just i think there's going to be a, a a common thread through all these which is there's not gonna be any, any of them with shitty lyrics on right yeah <laughs> i'm down i'm down uh again i told you i've uh, i've uh, my, i changed my my temperament on that once i started actually realizing what, what a real song was um so I also read that Kanye West, in 2005, he was interviewed by Clash, and he said, I'm not trying to compete with what's out there now. I'm really trying to compete with inner visions and songs in the key life. It sounds musically blasphemous to say something like that, but why not set that as your bar? Yeah, it's true. You know? I mean, I, I, mean, I, got, I guess I... I feel like, and you yourself included, with the, with your top five, is that's what that's what these are for, right? Yeah. They're 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 like benchmarks for us to strive toward. Yeah, making albums that great. You know? Yeah, I picked Wilco AM not because it's their best album, but because I have a memory that's tied to it. When I came back from Thailand, and I was like, holy shit, he's and I loved Uncle Tupelo. Yeah, and so it was like I was all over it, and then that was the album that just I, I always worked for me. You yeah. know. Um, so what else? You got anything else about this album that we want to talk about? Yeah, I'm trying to think of what else. Um, I think I did kind of cheat on this one because of the 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 length of it. I was that's, like, that's not cheating. It's I'm not gonna cheating. I'm gonna pick I'm gonna pick long records that 
you know. That, 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 see, I think that's that. I think that's cheating. I think that's cheating. But that, I don't think that this is an extra long record. And I think that if if a record is epic, I think Exile is epic. Yeah. I think that the Clash, London Calling, is epic. I think that Physical Graffiti is awesome. I think there's a ton of good double albums that deserve to be up there. Yeah. And this is one of them. I I think Exile deserves to be up there. It's not on my top five. Yeah. But. It was. It almost made mine. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great one. Yeah, uh, I told this. I forget the guy's name, but I, this one guy told me he goes, "Hey, you, let's, you want to meet this guy?" This was like when I first started playing music, and I was still a Stones nut. I said, we sat down. He, this guy says, um, "There's three of us there, and it's freezing. It's like it was it froze. I mean, it was like super, super, super cold. All roads are all iced over." And he said, "Well, you know, anytime I interviewed somebody, I always say, what's your favorite Stones album?'" I said, "Well, what's yours?" And he said, um, Exile on Main Street. I said, well, you're wrong. He looked at me, and I was like, there's no such thing as the Greatest Stones album. They're all epic. <laughs> and and on the way home, my friend was like, dude, you can't talk to him like that. And he, and he was sitting there yelling at me. We were going over the uh, – we were at Star Bar. We were going over the bridge on Lamar going toward Mopac. Yeah. And as he, right when he was saying that, this, his truck just was slid out and boom, right against the bridge. And I was, <laughs> it's it's the karma. Help but laugh. Yeah. <laughs> You know what? I also think with the whole having to narrow it down to the one album, I think it, like with the Stones, having to pick between for me, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile. It's like uh, I, moved on, I moved Those on. I moved on. Top three. I moved on to another artist because I was like, I can't pick one from the Stones. It's my favorite three. Zeppelin is the same way because I love one. I love Into the Outdoor. I, I mean, there's so many. And there's memories associated with all yeah. of them that I was like, I can't pick one Zep, so I'm not going to pick a Zeppelin song or an album. I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick another artist. You know? Well, <laughs> however you go about it's it, that's it, it's your choosing. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not the biggest Zeppelin fan. I love their music, but I don't want like really yeah, because you're a hardcore them. Stones. I know, I know that, and I, I don't really care for the Beatles that much. As I know that's blasphemous to say that, oh, but uh, you know, I believe you're Beatles or Stones, and then if you're Beatles, I believe you're John or Paul. Yeah. It's so funny. I forgot which five I gave you, and I was 100% prepared to talk about Abbey Road today, and I kind of can't believe I took it off. <laughs> and I'm trying to think of who I pulled. I think it was a last-minute pull. I was like, oh, I have to put that uh, on there. I'm guessing that it was for the Nacho Blues. Yeah. That record, oh, man. I what mean, I even say about that record? I it, it, It's another one of those that it would be, it's like like a Sunday morning coffee, chill out, record yeah you know just puts you in the mood so i know some about the record um i i mean i'll talk about why i love it so much again there is one track on there in particular um you don't miss your water uh-huh it's it's my one of my favorite songs of all time <clears throat> other people had covered it it wasn't written by him a lot of what i really like about taj actually <clears throat> is taj covered a lot of songs but he in respect to the the writer, he always covered them differently than the originals. I can't stand it when artists cover songs just like the originals were done. I, I think it does such a disservice to the writer. Um, I do a few covers. I try and make them as unrecognizable, not a, not not unrecognizable. You try not, to not, not mirror a little Steve Carlson all over it. Yeah, not in a blasphemous way, but like give it your own thing, you know. And Taj always did like you can listen to four different renditions of that track. You don't miss your water. Uh, Otis Redding did it. Uh, who else did it? A few other people. I, I, I can't even remember now. But um, but they're all different. And the original, who and I can't remember who the writer is, forgive me, but it doesn't sound anything like the original. Right. Um, 
But, I mean, that's genius in itself, being able to pick that song. Yeah. Right? Right? Yeah, even choosing it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you hear that for the first time? I mean, maybe back then it sounded different to him. And he's got this thing about his voice in general. I've been a huge, I've been a Taj Mahal fan since I was a little kid. I'm actually working on a project right now that that involves him. Um, I can't go too much into it, but it borders on obsession. And only because, uh, not because I'm such a fan, which I am, I'm more of a, I'm more fascinated by the fact that he's not a household name. Okay. And as I was growing up, my parents played him all the time. It wasn't until I got into my like late twenties and thirties that I realized that a lot of people didn't know who he was. Yeah. I mean, still to this day, if you go, you know, it, go find a hundred people, not musicians, most musicians know who he is. Of course. Um, but most people don't know who he is. Like I've turned dozens and dozens of people onto him who now are like, how did I not know of this right. guy until I was in my thirties or forties? Um, and he had this like thing to his voice. It's not perfect. It's like Dylan in a way where it's mm-hmm. like, you know, he, it, there's a, there's a, he, there's just something to it that's human. Okay. Um, but he's also just smooth. He's cool. Um, I, I also love Ry Cooter, his first band, oh, Rising right. Suns, which that album is phenomenal too. They only did one album together. Harmony and, picked a Ry Cooter <clears throat> album. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he they collaborated together i think they continued to collaborate together but they had a band and then they put out one album i think that was it one and done and then he went on to do uh the first track record he did was which i love that record too i almost picked that one it's just a self-titled just taj 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 mahal taj mahal um and there's some really great tunes on that but this record in particular has like karina karina on it yeah uh it's got all the songs man are just so good um and he, uh, what was I going to say about it? it it's, a, it's another one of those ones from my childhood that, you know, I, I'm nostalgic about it because I, I was raised on it. Yeah. Uh, but I also just, he, I feel like he, uh, do you know the story about, uh, Rock and Roll Circus? Cause you're a big Stones fan. Uh, I, I, I hopefully, hopefully I do. Okay, so he, um, sorry, I didn't mean to turn this back into a quiz on you. I, I just want to inform you because it's such a cool freaking story. <laughs> I want to hear I, it. I, I, um, I was reading this Eric Clapton biography once, and he talked about when he did Rock and Roll Circus, the only reason that he did it was because he wanted to meet Taj Mahal. And Taj Mahal was the only American artist that was invited to perform on it. It was a documentary that was made in, fuck, I think oh, it was 69. I, I, I remember the whole, right. the whole, the whole deal, but... I didn't know that part. Taj comes out and he's got the whole like hat and the scarf and he just looks like Pimped a fucking out. badass. Like he's just so badass. And comes out and rocks. And all those guys loved him. And I find it fascinating that he's so admired by so many people. Like so many great legendary artists. You you brought up Bonnie Raitt. She's they all sing his praises. Yeah. I, he must be I've I've only not, I didn't really meet him. I had an interaction with him one time. Long story I won't go into, but um, he, I've only heard he's the nicest guy in the world. Like he's just a sweetheart of a man. And he's also just a badass. And right. all these, you know, legendary musicians, and the list is long. Yeah. Uh, and, and not just older musicians that were of his, you know, era, but like newer musicians, Jack Johnson and uh, Keb Moe and... Um, who else? I saw I them play together, Kev and uh, Kev Mo and Taj Mahal. Yeah, they've done an album together. I think. Yeah, I think they did too. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so review. This record was re- released in 1968. Um, record collector said, Natural Blues has over time become a forgotten masterpiece, blessed with superlative backing from a studio band including Jesse, Ed Davis on guitar, Earl Palmer, veteran of numer- numerous New Orleans sessions with Fats Domino, Little Richard behind the drum kit, and Al Cooper on organ. Natural Blues is, as his title implies, the consummate late 60s blues album with roots cred by the truckload. Nice. American Drunkard said, uh, Natural Blues, a preview and a blueprint of his coming career, Natural Blues is a record that straddles up-tempo blues, Otis Redding-esque belted ballads, and gut bucket rock. When I need to explain to someone the genius of Taj Mahal, of how his music occupies so many times and so many places that the very elusiveness of the genre into itself may be in part what makes him so appealing. I turn to the natural blues. It may not be a timeless record. Its sound is the master of rock, blues, and soul still makes. I disagree with the timeless record part 100% well, because it's what, I think it's totally timeless. And everybody, I um, whenever I run into somebody who hasn't heard of Taj, I send that record. And... There's a ton of other records. And what's cool about his, his catalog is that he's done a lot of different stuff, man. He's done like slack key guitar and he had like a Hawaiian reggae sound for a little while. Um, he did some stuff when I was a little kid because obviously that record was before my time. Um, I think that was made in 68. Do you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but he did some stuff when I was a kid that in the 90s that was really good too. Dancing with the Blues. He did a bunch of, of records like that. But... um. He, uh, that's the record I always send people, and and I haven't had anybody not you know thank me, right? You know, my friend, my like my best friend from since sixth grade, bought me a Taj Mahal biography, and it's here someplace. I was I wanted to get it out and start reading it before we before we had the, our conversation, but I can't find it. Um, but yeah, so and it, it all this album also has probably one of the most covered songs ever on it. She caught the Katie and left me to mule ride. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. that is talk about groovy and mellow and just in the pocket. It is, I think, awesome. The Blues Brothers did it too. They on, did right on the rec- on the in yeah. the movie even. So here's your little quiz question for this album. All right, you ready? The song "She Caught the Katie and Left Me Mule to Ride." What is the Katie the woman is catching? Is it A. Another woman named Katie Johnson, B. The bus to Katie Kansas, or C. The Missouri Kansas Texas Railway? I think it's C. Correct. Nailed it. I think I read that one time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. actually called like the KMT Railway. Yeah. She called the KMT. I think I looked that up one time because I wanted to know what it meant, what it meant. And like years ago, and I was like, oh, that's cool. I love that he that he did that. Um, I got a f- interesting fun fact about this record too. I hear it. Let's hear it. Um, so the the Rising Suns with Ry Cooter. That was back in, I think, 67, before he did this record in 68. And they were all about trying to create, like, Terry Melcher, who produced a lot of the birds and mamas and papas. He was one of those California guys doing yeah. that, that Cal- making that California sound out there. Um, they, uh, they tried with that record, and Rising Suns was supposed to be, like, the next big thing. Right. And it just never hit. And I don't know why. There was probably some reason they didn't get enough promotion or whatever. Um, but Terry Melcher went on to produce this record. Okay. And he was the guy who... Uh, did you... Uh, do you know anything about the whole Charles Manson murders in L.A.? 
a bit because I, I grew up there, so I kind of know a little bit about like uh, you know a lot of that history. And obviously, and there was that movie that came out, the, yeah. the Tarantino movie that came out a few years ago. Right. That house. I don't know if you remember. Did you see that movie? Uh, probably. Uh, Once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah, I saw uh, it. It's like yes. Brad Pitt and everybody's yeah, yeah. in it. Oh yeah, I totally remember that. Now. But when he goes up, when Manson comes up to the house and he's like, "Hey, is Terry here?" And he's looking for Terry. Well, Terry was, I think he was married or dating um, Candace, Candace Bergen, Candace Bergman. Is that her name? He was dating her, and they lived in that house. They rented it. And uh, it was on Celio Drive, which is a famous drive because that's where Sharon Tate was murdered mm -hmm. and, and all the people that were in the house. But Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate ended up taking that house over from Terry. And Charles Manson, I don't know, you know, he was trying to, he wanted to be a musician. He wanted right, to be yeah. an artist. And he kept approaching Terry about producing his record. I forget which, which of the, um, the Beach Boys it was. Um, the drummer. It was the drummer, yeah. Um, not Carl. Now I can't remember. It'll come to you. Yeah. Um, too many names to remember. But anyway, he was, the whole thing was he was pissed that Terry wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't produce his record. And he kept coming to that house and then ended up going and murdering everybody in the house. Right. Like, and we don't know if it, I don't know if it, you know, history, who knows? There's a lot of scandal behind that whole situation and how it happened. But a lot of people believe that he went there to murder Terry because he wouldn't make yeah. the record for him. <laughs> or That's he didn't right. go. He sent people there, but. Um, okay. Joshua Tree by U2. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say that I'm one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because it makes me, I can't say I'm not a fan. I can say I'm not a fan yet. Right, right. Like, so I'm still trying to understand Bob Dylan and I'm a songwriter, but I, I just, it, I, I don't get it yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm the same way with U2, but I listened to this album and it, it, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> it really is good. Um, it was their fifth studio album. It was released in 1987. It was produced by Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno. Um, it won Grammy Awards for Album of the Year and Best Rock Performance by Dewar Group. Um, Rolling Stone said the album increased the band stature from stature from heroes to superstars, and I think that's right. Yeah, for sure. Because then Rattle and Hum came out the the next album, and they were already like that was. Like, then they were on top of the world. They were huge then. And that record, I have to put on the list of number one record to drive cross country okay. to. It is like one of those just you, you know, I, <clears throat> when I was growing up, I, as soon as I got a, my driver's license, yeah. the first thing I wanted to do, I got a pickup truck and I just started going everywhere by myself. Right. I'd throw my guitar in the back of the truck with a sleeping bag in the tent and a fishing pole. And I would go out to, you know, I'd go up to Kern River, I'd go to Yosemite, I'd go to the Sierra Mountains, and the first thing I'd do was I'd put in that CD. Right. And um, and still, whenever I go on road trips, it's my favorite record to, to listen to when I'm driving. It's just a driving record. Okay. Um, it's got a it's got a vibe to it, and I think the songwriting on it's phenomenal. I think um, Edge's guitar work is really beautiful. It is great. It's not a rocker, you know. I mean, there's a there's a couple of tunes on there that are really good, but um, it's just one of those ones that flows too. It's yeah. got a flow to it, like it's a back to front. I would never really want to listen to any one song out of place. I mean, I guess I would. Like, there's tunes on it that are great that yeah. stand alone, 
but it's really one of those ones that you got to back to front it. You know, like, I man, I'm about, I'm about albums. front to back. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or front. Yeah, number nine, number nine. Uh, so you know, I mean, they sold 25 million records. I mean, that's a truckload of records. And then they toured the album, and that's when they started playing in stadiums as opposed to you know like clubs and stuff. And so this album is they base. It's basically about how they contrast like what is real America and what's like what that, that fascination America. Right, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's it's pretty clear in, in, in the songs that he does it. Um, well, you go brought ahead. up the producer. I just wanted to bring this up because it kind of ma- it kind of makes me laugh. That you said you're not really a huge Bob Dylan fan. Daniel Lanois, who produced it, played with Bob Dylan for years and years. Um, he played lap. He played lap steel. Okay. Um, I think he might have played guitar too, but he played a lot of lap. Lanois is known for his lap steel playing. I actually own one of his old lap nice. steels. I met him at a party one night in Hollywood. He produced Dashboard Confessionals record okay. in like early 2000s. Um, and I was at a like the release party for it. And it was really weird. It wasn't, a, I don't even know if it was a release party. I, I can't remember exactly. We were at a party. All the band was there. Lanois was there. And the girl I knew throwing the party came over to me and said, hey, there's this guy here and he doesn't really know anybody. And he's like, you know, he's, He's like a musician producer. I don't really know. I'm, she she wasn't in the business. She was right. like, "Will you go talk to him?" I was like, "Yeah." So I went over and he was kind of standing in the corner by himself. I said, "Hey, what's going on?" He's like, "Yeah, I'm Daniel." And he's, for me, I had known his work more than I had known him as yeah. a face. So I met him, and we ended up talking for like an hour and just about like life and stuff. Yeah. And as the night progressed, it was like he was like, "So what do you do?" And I was like, "I play music," you know, and. He's like, oh, cool. And I'm, and I'm talking about myself. Like, at the time, I'm like playing at like small little venues, hotel, cafe, and like places around LA. And he was like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. And I'm like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm, I'm a producer. And I'm a musician too, but I'm a producer. And I said, oh, cool. Anything I'd know? <laughs> and he kind of smiled at me and he's like, well, I, I just did Dashboard's new record. And I remember reading in, in like Rolling Stone that Daniel Anbois had produced their new record. I don't even think it had come out yet. And I, it took, it was that moment, aha moment. And I'm like, oh, are you Daniel Lamar? I mean, yeah. obviously he told me his name was, I don't Dan- even know if he said his name was Dan or Danny or something, yeah. but I was like, fuck me. Are you Daniel Lamar? <laughs> and he's like, I didn't even ask you, can I cuss on this? <laughs> yeah, for okay, sure. Good, good. Fuck yeah. Uh, I'm like, oh my God, you're Daniel Lamar. He's like, I am. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, you produced some of my favorite records. He also produced Emmylou Harris's Wrecking Ball, which won a Grammy. Yeah. He's a beast, man. He's so talented. And, um, I told him, I said, that Joshua Tree is one of my favorite all-time records. So he told me stories about it. We just had a blast of a night. And I um, I said, you know, I actually own one of your lap steels. He said, how'd you get it? And he had, he had like, he just, I guess he had sold to Guitar Center, the one on Sunset in Hollywood. He had yeah. sold like a bunch of gear to them and they were doing some sort of auction and I heard about it. And I had an old banjo that I never played because Right. Who the fuck wants to play banjo? Uh, I mean, I play a bunch of instruments, and that's the one instrument that I'm like, I, I I had it sitting there. I'm like, I never play this thing. So I went in and I said, hey, and it was a nice one. So I don't want to trade this for a lap steel. I want to start playing lap steel. And the guy was like, well, the ones we have on the floor are cool, but we just got a bunch of guitars from Daniel and Wall. You want to see it? I'm like, yeah, I have two. One was a Rickenbacker, and one was a 1950 National Lap. Okay. And the na- the 19 the National, I was just like, oh my god, can uh, I have it? And he was like. We haven't even priced it yet. And I'm like, just go back and talk to the manager. And he came out and I forget how much it was. It was like 
six or seven hundred bucks or something. Oh, that's nothing. Yeah, and he and he gave it to me and. Anyway, I ended up bringing that up with him, and he's like, "Oh man, I played that out on a bunch of Dylan records. That's so cool that you have that." It was awesome. <laughs> well, um, the manager of YouTube, Paul McGinnis, recounted that the Joshua Tree was kind of the great romance, you know, of the United States as the group has, had been touring the company for like five years, in the, like first five years, of the eighties, like like five or six months out of the year, uh, and. You know, at, at the time, if, if you think about it, if you think about you two, I mean, they're not really as blues based as like a lot of the other bands that I love. Um, Zap, Beatles, Stones. Um, I mean, pretty much all, almost all rock, mm-hmm. if if you ask me. Um, but, you know, he started spending time with, you know, Keith Richards and, and Jagger and, and, you know. B.B. King, too. Yes, yeah, yes, B.B. Yeah. King. Uh, and Bono was pretty embarrassed that he didn't know much about the blues, you know. So he kind of. You know, I mean, U two is, is going to be based on like the kind of their punk rock stuff that they that they that they've studied when they were youth in the in the, the seventies. But uh, Van Morrison and Keith kind of encouraged Bono to you know look more at your, at your music, you know, become a better songwriter, better lyricist. And Bono had said at one time, uh, I used to think that writing words was so old fashioned, so I sketched. I wrote words on the microphone for the Joshua Tree. I felt that the time had come for to write words that meant something out of my experience. Weird that you'd say that because. I said, I think of all the records that I picked, they're all, I think that they're all lyrically very brilliant, you know? And it's funny that he made a conscious effort. For me, and I don't know how you feel about this, I'm just not a big, I don't don't like it when artists or musicians or songwriters put a lot of political stuff into their music. I don't either. I don't, I don't find, I mean, Dylan did it really beautifully like blowing in the wind it's a it's a political anthem but he did it in a subtle way mm-hmm. um using metaphor and using you know which i love um and that album i feel like is when they transitioned from being because their earlier stuff like boy in october had a lot of you know obviously there was a lot going on too in, in ireland where there, there was a lot he had he had to say and still does to this day Yes, he does. And it was the one that I felt like he didn't do it. <laughs> right, know? right. He did it early, and then he kind of did it later. And I felt like at that moment, you said a romantic album. I'm like, funny. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. But it is. It's it's you know doesn't have it. It doesn't have such harshness to it. Yeah. Uh, well, so I also read how Bono was kind of pushing for a more American sound. You know, they'd been in America. And they wanted a little bit different what they're doing, and that Edge was kind of like pushing back on that, right? Uh, and then Edge kind of got turned on to Howlin' Wolf and Robert Johnson and Hank Williams and was like, well, okay, wait a second here. I think we can do something with this. So uh, I love how like, it kind of this album is kind of a changing of the, of the, of the guard, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to like style and, and, and growing yeah. as a band, as, a, as, a, as songwriters, as, 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 just as music. Yeah. I think, <clears throat> I don't know, I think what, like what you said earlier about Stones, We've got there's they've they made so many great records. I feel like there's some bands that peak, mm-hmm. and you're like, man, that was that was their best record. Yeah. And then there's some bands that continue to just keep making great records. But I feel like, in my personal opinion, and look, I I even liked some of their stuff as it got a little more electronic. But I none of it I don't think was as good as Joshua Tree was. So I'm not I'm not when you said, you know, you're you're not a fan yet, right? I'm not a fan of everything they've done. They've done, but I'm certainly a fan of that era of YouTube. Fair enough. You know, that's that's a completely fair thing to say. 
Um, so I, re- I read a funny story that was said that said what, the streets have no name. So it was brought to the table by the Edge, and they were having a hard time when they were in the studio. Have you heard the story? No. Um, recording it due to all like the time and signature signature shifts. Um, uh, Eno said that like forty percent of the time in the studio for that record was spent on that one song, and that he was going to stage an accident so that he could just say, "Hey, let's let's start anew," so they could start over anew. But I think the engineer or somebody had caught on to what he was doing and wouldn't let him do it. So <laughs> that's great. All right. Original, I mean, quiz question. You ready for this one? Yeah. Originally, the title of this record was not Joshua Tree. What was the working title? Was it A, The Two Americas? Was it B, The Desert and the Tree? Or was it C, The Stone That Rolled? I'm going to go A. Congratulations. You're nailing them, dude. You're nailing them. (laughs) Two out of three. Uh, uh, one of the reviews I read about it, Colin Hogg in the New Zealand Herald claimed that the record's power lies in its restraint and that there's an urgency underlining virtually all of the 11 songs. Another review by Robin Denslow said, of The Guardian said that, that called the album Epic, saying that what U2 has achieved is an exhilarating and varied blend of controlled power and subtlety. I just thought of Bono would probably want something that was slightly political like that. <laughs> I, I think that uh, that was one of the things that turned me off of you too. Mm-hmm. When I when I when I first kind of hit the hit the scene, I was just like, stop, stop yeah. spraying about all that stuff, please. You yeah, know? yeah. You know who else does I, that is Michael Franti. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a famous saying by Love the music, love the music. Don't get me wrong, but I, I'm like, okay, I just want to. Uh, that's when I go get my drink, I guess. Yeah, right. Speaking of, cheers. <laughs> Hello. <dude. laughs> Um, I think it was Alice Cooper had a really famous quote once that was um, something, I'm going to bastardize this quote, by the way, but it was um, artists have, it's an abuse of power yeah. to push your political views as an artist because there is power behind, you know, um, creating music and, and, and obviously you're using vibration and sound and words to attract people into and to resonate into people's yeah, hearts and sure. their, their minds. And, you know, I just think leave that, leave that shit at home. You know, like, I, I just I'm don't think it's uh, I think it's a abuse. And I, I, I still, and right now it's, it's very prevalent. I feel like yeah. a lot of people are doing it because there's a lot of, a lot of stuff happening in the world. And I just, I don't, I don't do it. I don't use any of the platforms that I have to do it. I think, it, I don't think it's a, there's a place for it. And so it kind of turns me off to, to you two and Bono in that sense like I almost feel bad for the rest of the band because it's like well, but we Stop. don't <laughs> we, dude, we don't feel that way <laughs> you know, like, I don't know maybe they do but <laughs> they might you never know I know but I, so uh, no but it's it, it, it's a it's a, a really killer album and you know I'll, I'll tell you again thanks for turning me on to it yeah yeah uh, now let's move on to the war on drugs yeah okay is so, this the last one this is the last one oh, okay cool so I was a little surprised by this you know, I when I saw any lists, you know, I've you've done two things today. I've already told you, you know, top picked record and now the most recent record by like twelve or fifteen years. Um, but it was their fourth studio album, which was just five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, tell me why you picked this record. Oh man, did it do something to you? Yeah. Did yeah. it did it change there, something? There, this of all the records has the most emotional connection for me. Um, we won't go too too far of a deep dive here, but um, I went through a divorce a while right at this time, 
at the time this record came out. Okay. Um, uh, and I mean, first I think that, uh, Adam Gronofsky is an amazing songwriter. He's another great lyricist. Like the lyrics on this record. How do you pronounce his last name? Gronofsky. Gronofsky. I think. I, I could be bastard. It's Grand Seal, I think. Is it? I, I don't. I don't know how you say it, but I it, thought there was a K. Then I thought it was Adam Gronofsky. I think he changed his name. Oh. I don't. I don't know. Okay. Um, but so yeah, I went through a, a just you know a, a separation and and at that time. I had all the 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 record that had come out before that, uh, "Living a Dream," was a great record, and I had always loved it. It was a little more upbeat. Um, like dug the record. I think there was a, a pretty long period of time in between when they released that next record, which was a deeper understanding, and it won a Grammy, which it was up against some pretty big records that year. And I remember Metallica, I, Queens of the Stone Age. Mm-hmm, I I tweeted about it because I was such a champion of that record like it made me have hope for rock you know i was like <laughs> fuck yes like and I, they're just such a talented creative band again segues like mm-hmm. the song segues are fucking gorgeous Brilliant. um i think the record from back to front there's not one bad song on it there's two in particular that i really love and now i'm gonna freaking forget the name of the strangest thing and um, a lot of them sound alike yeah they've you know? got a vibe you know it's funny they've got they, a sound it's funny because the last record we talked about, Joshua Tree, has a similar thing. There's a tone. There's a continuity yeah. okay, to I the can, record. I, I can dig that. That you you can feel like it. Uh, there's a flow. Josh, I, I think um, the first one, Jackson Brown for Everyone, man's the same way too, with the exception of a couple tunes here and there. But but uh, a deeper understanding. Uh, I it was very. I had a cathartic experience with it. I I basically spent a night of you know <clears throat> not to get too deep and emotional but this separation was really hard for me and i kind of pushed it everything down yeah. emotionally yeah, pushed uh, it that i was that i was going through and one night i was like fuck it dude you you're gonna have to it's gonna come out at some point right and you're either gonna like you know blow up and punch some dude in the face or something's gonna happen and so i sat with a bottle <laughs> a bottle of tequila and that record uh all night long and I just played it on repeat for like, I think I probably listened to the record 15 times over and over. And I couldn't, I, I kept thinking about turning the record, like changing it. And I just kept flipping. I'd listen on vinyl. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I just kept flipping it and flipping it and flipping yeah. it and flipping it. And it's just something about it. I found comfort in it, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, and there is a lot in the record that speaks to the soul. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. And tonally, I love his guitar tones. He's very meticulous about it i just saw him play they played acl live they sold out both nights i went to both nights like came back to town for it because <laughs> i was like i have to see war on drugs in austin i saw him last time before um when they first released that record they played stubs two nights in a row and i saw him there both nights um got emotional one of the nights like actually Good. cried during like not crying like tears shooting out my yeah, freaking yeah, yeah. eyeballs like crying during one of the songs because I just like it was kind of in that same time period um, and I, I don't have many albums or even many artists that can do that to me you know that can like um, evoke that much emotion I, I had a similar experience over South by Southwest um, about a year and a half ago my best friend and drummer in my band randomly hit his head and died oh 
I heard about this. So um, he was like my right hand man. I'd say, dude, there's a show. Let's go. He was he was always there with me. Yeah. His name was Yates Hagen. And I miss him to this day. But I was at South by Southwest and I basically was watching Western Youth. And I, I was just like, Yates would freaking love this. And I started just fucking crying. And I, 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 so it's weird. I, I, I know that I know that feeling. I saw Sigur Ross play the other night at ACL Live too. They also just did two nights here, and I have a buddy. I don't know if I pronounced their name right. I, I can never remember, <laughs> but um, I had a buddy who passed away in November, and he loved he loved them. Same thing, same exact thing. It was, uh, you know, that as soon as I heard it, I was like, that there was this one track in particular. It was like, ah, it's so crazy how how music does that to you. You know how it brings you back, how it um, can make you reflective, how it can just um bring yeah. back so much it's, yeah i mean it's we're talking about that already you know so mm -hmm. um okay well let's get away from the the, the sad stuff yeah sorry <laughs> i didn't mean to bring us down <laughs> all right i got a quiz question hey, man, for you. you asked <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's weird i will say this to turn it around into a lighter you know and into a happier part happier so, sort of side of the story is um I don't feel any of that anymore. Like I don't associate it with that. Now I listen to it and I just like rock out to it and I love that record. And I, you know, there's no negative connotation at all with the record. I just Good. think it's one of the most brilliant things. And when it won the Grammy, I like threw a mini party at my house. <laughs> I, I literally, I like had people over and I was like, guys, and like played the record for everybody. I was like, listen to this record. Everybody has to have this record in their vinyl collection because it's so right. good. You know, I, I need to go out and get it. Um, okay, so the War on Drugs was originally founded. This is a quiz question. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. uh, with another person, mm -hmm. uh, Adam Grandusil, and was that person A. Dave Grohl, B. Jeff Tweedy, or C. Kurt, Kurt Bile? That is right. <laughs> that is right. So yeah, it was it was originally uh, founded with Kurt, who left after the first after they recorded one album, then he left to go follow his social uh, um, solo career. Uh, now. Adam Granduciel is, is how I'm going to say it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how, how it's supposed to be pronounced. Okay. But this guy is badass. I mean, he plays freaking everything. I was like looking at what, what he played on this album. He was playing uh, guitar, rhythm guitar, a harmonica, bass, organ, key. I mean, everything. His vocals. You got to see it. You've not seen him live. And then I read about how, how like, Everything was layered. He took him like a year, and he had a back problem and all that stuff. And then I was like, "Are, are these guys a touring band?" And then I started reading, and they they tour like crazy. Their live show is insane, and his guitar rig, I mean, it is like it's a whole like I'd say more than a semi semicircle. It's like a <laughs> it's like a almost a full circle that encompasses him. That you're almost like, how do you have that many guitar pedals? Like that's insane. And he's and he but he's he's a tone freak. A total right. tone freak. That doesn't surprise me at all. And his tone is gorgeous. It's so good. Um, See, I'm a, I'm a Keith Richards fan. You don't need pedals. I'm bummed, though, that he just came to town because um, I don't know when they're going to come back, but definitely you need to check him out. Like, If you get a chance. Yeah. The live I, show's phenomenal. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you that when there is a show that I need to see, I wish you would just call, call me up and say, hey, listen – Either you need to get a ticket, or I've got an extra ticket, or let's go to the show together because I love getting turned on to new live acts. Yeah, let's do it. Um, a review: Michael Bonner of Uncut Magazine described it as some of the richest, most compelling, and least lonely-sounding music of Grand Ducille's career. Uh, Mark Richardson at Pitch Pitchfork reviewed the record. 
he liked. Uh, like the music from the era, a deeper understanding is all about contrast, the push, the pull of the rock grittiness and authenticity, while the layers of the keyboard and studio sheen give it the music a dreamier quality. He also said that a different songwriter, someone, I love this, a different songwriter, someone like Neil Young might sketch out what this place looks like, tell you about who might be there, you might find there, but Grandiosil can't or doesn't want to. And the lack of articulation, that inability to identify the source of pain and path to re- redemption becomes another of the record's themes. Uh, all of that, uh, but all that happens beneath the surface almost subliminally. It's the impossible sweep and grandeur of the music that tells the real story of how a rush of sound can take us somewhere we can't explain. And that's how I felt. That's awesome. Yeah. That last part. So. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a beautiful record. I, I'm... I'm the, they just put out another one. I'm, I'm not. I, I like it. It's not a deeper understanding. And living a, a dream, the one before it, is not a deeper understanding. It's just one of those records that, like, you hope, like, God, come on, one one up it. You know, I find the older we get, or the more I guess technology evolves in music, you don't have those like steady like just you know one two three like records that are just like bangers right you know um i hope for it you know yeah i, I still do but um but it's tough you know it's, yeah well when, when you get into a, a specific band or whatnot you know regardless of what wilco does i'm still gonna like it mm-hmm. uh whatever the stones do i'm still gonna like it you know but just because i have the history with it yeah yeah you know um, yeah. i've got one other review that i want to read you because cool. i think this one is awesome uh, Spin reviewed the record, uh, and they said they should be gigantic. This is what major label kingmaker Jimmy Iovine once famously said about the War on Drugs, a band that is actually a single 38-year-old man interpreting the classic rock canon through a lens of blurred moroseness. It's not just a deeper understand. It, it's not just a deeper understanding. Is one of the best rock albums in years. It's that the music itself is so expansive and enveloping that it feels like it should be everywhere. That's a compliment coming from Jimmy and Iovine. Yeah. Wow. I never read, I never knew he said that. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm glad. Like, it's funny. I mean, I know that, you know, winning the Grammy kind of validates my feeling about the record. You know, the fact that they won a Grammy makes me like, oh, it's, you know, you get that feeling of like, well, I knew that record when it first came out. Yeah. You know, I- along with like hundreds of thousands of other people and probably millions of people. <laughs> but I really, the first time I heard it, you know, when you first time you heard, hear a great record and yeah. you're like, Holy shit! Play it again, right? You know, and you're like, "Whoa!" Play it again. Like, <clears throat> you don't get that with every record. You yeah. know, a lot of times, like they they grow on you. Yeah. You know, you'll like listen to go, you know, and then after a while, you're like, "Yeah, that's cool." I just knew right when I heard that record, and it doesn't resonate with everybody. I've got friends who I've tried to turn it on to, and they're like, "Yeah, don't get it. Listen to it three times, don't really get it." I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know." Different don't strokes, know. different folks, brother. Yeah, I mean that's it. it you know, and I mean, it's just the same with me. I say, I don't get it yet. I don't, I don't yet, you know, but I know at some point I'm, I'm going to, if, if that many people like it, don't understand Joni Mitchell. I just don't do it. I don't get it yet. I don't either. So weird. I don't, I don't, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I, I can't, I've tried. I'm trying. I'm I've, trying. I'm she's, st- been, she's been picked twice. I've been trying since I was a little kid. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still don't, I'm like, I, I don't know what it is. I, I, I disagree with you about Dylan because I do love Dylan. But there's some no, other cats like you, but you, I think I feel like you're more you're you have a you're you're a little edgier in your yeah. in your song or in your uh, music uh, taste. Yeah, you like Lou Reed. Uh, I've never really gotten into. I him. never really got into Lou Reed either. Um, 
you know? Yeah, there's some some music that I mean, I like some hard rock too. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't like tend hard to rock. like like Alice Cooper. That's a little too. I don't know. Uh, I don't really love punk, although I like Bad Religion and I like. I loved Green Day. Uh, I did too. My wife hated it. Hates it still. Yeah. My wife hates Jeff Tweedy. I'm like, well, how can you hate Jeff Tweedy? <laughs> uh, well, dude, thank you so much for coming out here tonight um, or today. Uh, I like how we ended on stuff we don't like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, tell tell everybody all these listeners uh, where they can find you on that good old interweb oh man Steve Carlson's pretty much I have I got lucky I don't know for having such a common name I've got all the socials that just Steve Carlson's so Instagram and Twitter and all that I'll, and put, it, I'll put it on there Spotify I've got, I've got all my albums on Spotify and iTunes and Pandora um, and then the latest project I'm working on is called Radio Company it's a band that I have with my buddy Jensen Ackles uh, and we do kind of a duo uh, thing we're working on our third record right now so that's kind of what i'm working on i was actually in the studio all day yesterday working on that and um so that'll be the next release that i put out so i produce all the all the music and he and i both sing on it so awesome shout yeah. out to pat Mansky in the zone yeah 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 <laughs> pat's great and he's playing drums on everything and he's engineering incredible. it too yeah uh he basically produced our record nice along with us but yeah so He's well, man, a beast. He is awesome. I love it. Well, hey, man, I had a blast today. Yeah, you too. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I love it. Love the format. Yeah, it's super cool. Yeah, know? it's really cool. All right, man. Well, thanks a lot. All right. All right, buddy. Cheers. Dude, what a blast. Great conversation. Did pretty good on the quiz questions. And as always, I should thank everybody that's still listening to the podcast, especially at the very end. Thank you for listening. And if you got the gumption, head over to TheBigGunShow.com and check out what my band is up to these days. You can also catch us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all with the handle of the Big Gun Show Band at the, at the beginning, band at the end. And when COVID has left us alone completely, our most consistent gig is our monthly residency at the Little Longhorn Saloon here in Texas, home with Chicken Shit Bingo. We play the first happy hour of every month on Friday. Bring Grandma. She'll have a blast. Close your eyes. You're back in the grave. What five well, records do you have? Until next time.